Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Joyce Tilsley on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Cleopatra, Last Queen of Egypt. I learned a tremendous amount by talking about it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Joyce Tilsley on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Cleopatra, Last Queen of Egypt. I learned a tremendous amount by talking to Joyce today, primarily because Joyce is a brilliant historian, and it didn't hurt that I know nothing about Egypt itself or Egyptian history. I was about to say ancient Egypt, but to Egyptologists such as Joyce, the Egypt we're talking about isn't very ancient as it falls squarely within the Roman period. Um, there's some fascinating things here. I bet you didn't know that Cleopatra spoke Greek as her first language. I bet you did not know that she married her brother. Actually, she married two of her brothers. Um, she also seems to have had children by two Roman emperors. So uh, she's a fascinating person and Uh, Joyce has done a masterful job of telling her story, or at least what of it we can tell given the paucity of the sources, which is another thing that you will learn in the course of the interview, that we can actually know only a little about Cleopatra herself. Uh, What there is to know, as I say, Joyce has wrung out of the sources like water out of a wet rag. I enjoyed the interview a lot, and I hope you do as well. Here it is. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Marshall. Uh, I should just tell our listeners that today we're very pleased to have Joyce Tilsley on the show, and we'll be talking about her fascinating new book, Cleopatra, Last Queen of Egypt, which was just released by our good friends at uh, Basic Books. So, um, Joyce, maybe you could do us the favor of telling us just a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and where you went to school and that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. I come from Bolton in Lancashire, um, which is in England. And it's in the northwest of England. I don't know if anyone will know where it is. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're quite a famous um, cotton mining, cotton milling town. And a hundred or so years ago, a lot of the people who actually owned the cotton mills invested quite heavily in ancient Egypt. This is going a long way back for my story, but it really? kind of gets to a point in a minute. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, and, and the result of that is that we actually have a lot of museums in the northwest which actually deal with Egypt in quite a serious way. They've got quite serious Egypt collections. So when I grew up, in, grew up in the northwest of England, I was actually sort of taken on quite a regular basis to look at collections of Egyptology huh. and just got really fascinated with the whole subject. Huh. Um, it, it's one of those things that the more you look at the object and the more you read about it, the more you really get interested in it. And I guess that just kind of inspired me. So then I went to university and did archaeology. Mm-hmm. Spent a bit of time studying prehistory, uh-huh. and then kind of converted to Egyptology full time. Now, where did you do your? Did you go on archaeological digs then? I did. I did a degree at Liverpool University, and you had to go on digs as part of uh-huh. the degree. 
So yeah. I started off in Britain and then I went to Europe. And then when I was at Oxford doing my doctorate, I was lucky enough to be able to start working with the British Museum uh -huh. at a site called Ashmanane, which is great. And then I started working on survey works and ended up with my own survey at a place called Nazlet Tuna, which I did for a couple of years. Um, more recently, though, I've not done so much field work because the children growing up, I've yeah. been more writing. Yeah. No, uh, the reason I ask you that, I was certain that you had gone on digs before because I uh, spent some time on a dig in Russia once, and I'm quite a kind of written documents and I, I study the 16th and 17th century as I told you but uh, I went on a dig and I found it absolutely amazing not not just yeah. for the archaeology which was extraordinarily interesting but for the camaraderie of the place and living under the uh, we lived under the stars in central Russia it was really <laughs> quite remarkable it was very primitive but you know there was this sense that we were always about to uncover something Yes, it's a fantastic way of life. And having dug sort of in Europe and in Egypt, they're very, very different ways of digging. But they're all, they're all the same in one way, in that you have this camaraderie in the team. But in Europe, you know, you'd be under canvas and, and messing about it in dirt, really. In Egypt, it's sandy, and you tend to have workmen working with you. But it's still exactly the same feeling of not knowing what's going to turn up and, and what you might find next. Yeah, I found that sort of sense of expectation just hung in everyone's minds, that we were always about to do And we weren't under any canvases or anything like that. We, we, we had hordes of students from all over Russia who had come to serve <laughs> as our laborers. And, but there was just this sense that, you know, and at the end of the day, people would say, well, I found this and I found that. And it was just, yeah, I thought it was incredible. There's never enough time, is there? You start you, you no. get to the end of the dig and you've got to finish and you think, but if only I could just do a bit more, another foot or another inch even, I might find something more. No, you're absolutely right. And, and one amazing part about it was that, you know, usually you have uh, trouble getting young people up in the morning, but these people were just out as soon as it was light and yeah. on the dig and working very hard. And, uh, yeah, it was just it was just fantastic. And, and I remember when, when we had to close the dig, at the end, actually, I left right before they closed it, but... Um, uh, you know, people were sad about it, that they wanted to continue. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. This, the site I was on was absolutely enormous. And they, they had, uh, it was actually a city destroyed by the Mongols, uh, and they had excavated, you know, like 1% of it or something. So oh, it, was, I th I was, it was an amazing experience for me, and I, and I learned really a tremendous amount about it. And um, I don't, another, and this will sound uh, very odd coming from an academic, but my wife, who's a mathematician, loves books, and don't think ill of me or my wife, but she loves books by this woman. Her name is Elizabeth Peters. Do you know these books? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. My wife has They're read... really good. My wife has read every one of these books. <laughs> I love this too. <laughs> yeah. And she has... She is an Egyptologist as well. Isn't that right? Yes, she's a proper Egyptologist. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. No, my wife loves these books, and uh, so it's... And she actually writes under two names, I just learned recently, but uh, anyway, so yeah, Egyptology is also extraordinarily interesting in the sense that little bits of Egypt tend to show up in places that you don't really expect them. I mean, just as you said, in the northwest of England, and I remember in Russia, occasionally you find, you know, an obelisk here, an obelisk there, all over Europe, yeah. you know. Yeah. Let me ask you... And it's not always genuine Egyptian stuff either. Sometimes it's things that have been inspired by Egyptians yeah, and no, come through the Romans and so on, but it's still there, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. We have a There's a kind of classic American house that has an Egyptian-style pillar, all of which were built in the 19th century. Um, so it may, I, I, this is kind of a digression before we get on to Cleopatra, but how did all that stuff from Egypt get to uh, parts non-Egyptian? That is, places like the British Museum or places like the... Um, the Imperial Museum in Germany or these, 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 these various places in the United States? How, how did they get where they are? 
Well, it's had quite a long history. Um, for a long time, uh, nobody could read hieroglyphs. So nobody actually understood the value of the ancient Egyptian civilization. They knew that the land had these stone objects there. But the understanding of Egyptian history came either from classical authors or from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And the Egyptians themselves at that time didn't particularly want these monuments. Mm-hmm. They were collected and transported out of Egypt, but they were regarded pretty much as curiosities, and nobody really valued them that much, even mm. in sort of the major museum collections. And places like the British Museum were sort of in two minds whether to even accept them. Mm-hmm. By the time it became obvious, the hieroglyphs were decoded by Champollion, and, and gradually it became obvious that there was a huge, huge history there, that we could start to read the text. And there's been a very deeply growing awareness that, of course, we shouldn't be moving this stuff out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. So these days, that doesn't happen. But it was more or less collected in the time before it was really appreciated what people were collecting. And it's strange because you would have a museum full of objects that were classified as art objects, really, because no one knew what they were. Or Mm -hmm. they knew what they were, but they couldn't really put them into any sort of context. And it's gradually, as they've been in the museums, we've got more and more understanding about the objects. Um, These days, you're not allowed to take anything out of Egypt, quite rightly. Mm -hmm. And there's very, very strong controls about who's allowed to excavate. Mm -hmm. But two, 200 years ago or so, anybody could go to Egypt, pretty much get a local bit of permission and could take home things that they found. Mm-hmm. So that's how it happened, almost almost really by accident. No one set out to say, I must find the Egyptian civilization. They'd bring them back as art objects. Mm-hmm. And then later we find out about them. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could just tell the story very briefly of how these hieroglyphics uh, came to be uh, decoded or understood. I don't know the story myself. Well, it, it's, uh, it's, again, it's another long story. And hieroglyphic writing was used throughout the dynastic age, which is about 3,000 years. But it, it died out pretty much when, first of all, Christianity and then Islam came to Egypt. So they stopped writing the hieroglyphs. Mm-hmm. They carried on with the Egyptian language, but of course it kept changing as languages do. Mm-hmm. But it got to a point where nobody actually could read the hieroglyphic language. Mm-hmm. And some people didn't even realise it was a language. They, they thought it was patterns or decorations and so on. Mm-hmm. People in the West kept trying to decode it because they thought that the Egyptians probably had the key to lots of esoteric knowledge and, and an understanding of life. And it would be very, very interesting and useful to be able to decode it. But they couldn't really do it because they had no understanding of the language. Mm -hmm. And they didn't understand how it was constructed, how it was written. They were also using some monuments as their guides that weren't actually genuine Egyptian monuments. They were looking at hieroglyphs that had been written during the Roman period that were fake hieroglyphs on fake Egyptian pieces. So they didn't really get very far. Mm -hmm. Then when Napoleon went on his expedition to Egypt, he managed to collect a lot more information and one of the things that his um, survey found in Egypt was the, the Rosetta Stone, mm-hmm. which is a stone which has the same text on it, written three times. It's written in two different languages and three different scripts. So the Egyptian part of it is written twice, once in hieroglyphs and once in a form of Egyptian called Demotic script, mm-hmm. and once in ancient Greek. And of course, because we have the text in ancient Greek and because the text tells us that all three are the same text, it was starting to become possible for people to read the Greek text mm-hmm. and then try and, and decode the Egyptian text. And lots and lots of people worked on it, but the person who finally cracked it was a French scholar called Champollion. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, once he'd realised that it was semi-alphabetic language and once he'd realised that um, some people who'd worked on it in the past were right, they'd worked out that royal names were enclosed in a loop, 
he was also able to use the Greek text, he was able to use other references from other sources, and he put it all together, and he was finally able to come up with a decoding. But it, it was a very long process, and it couldn't really be done fully until we managed to find texts which were written during the Ptolemaic period, which is Cleopatra's period, mm-hmm. where quite a lot of Greek people were living in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And because there were Greeks living in Egypt and they couldn't read the writing, and because the royal family themselves spoke Greek, Mm-hmm. It was deemed appropriate to publicise things not only in Egyptian but also in Greek, mm-hmm. and that really held the key to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating story, and we'll come back to it yeah. in a second because one of the things I, I, I vaguely realised that Egypt was part of the Hellenistic world, but I didn't realise that the Egyptian—I'm putting that in air quotes—the Egyptian elite in the Ptolemaic period actually spoke Greek. But let me ask a question about. Um, the Egyptian language itself. Egyptians that I know speak Arabic today. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what happened to the Egyptian language? Well, the Christian Egyptians, the Copts, also now speak Arabic in daily life, but in some of their services, the church services, they continued with the old form of the Egyptian language, but of course it got corrupted. Uh So one of the reasons that Champollion was able to make a lot of progress was that he was a Coptic scholar, and he went to the churches, and he studied the Coptic language as it was spoken in the churches, mm-hmm. and he also studied um, their writings, which used some of the old Egyptian writings, but also had some Greek letters in it. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's a bit like the way that Latin survived being spoken mm-hmm. in the church mm-hmm. in Europe, even after sort of people stopped speaking Latin. Mm-hmm. It was a different form. It, it had evolved, but it was still offered a, a key to the whole decipherment. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting how the church served to preserve the language, and that Latin is a yeah. good analogy, or Old Church Slavic in my world uh, is the same sort of thing. So is there any sort of... Uh do people speak Egyptian or Coptic anywhere today outside the church? I, I don't think so. I don't think so, no. yeah, So that's... when you see a film like The Mummy, uh-huh. um, and they're actually speaking it, it, we don't actually know how the words are pronounced. Did I was going to ask the... that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the curious things about Egyptian is that they didn't put the verbs in their, uh, not the verbs, sorry, the vowels in their writing. Yeah. So it's a bit like reading a text message or a very abbreviated message. They didn't put them in. We don't. We think that they spoke them, but we yeah. think that because they knew what they were, they didn't need to write them. Right. Right. Well, that's, that's actually that's true in some Latin shorthand, and it's true in in Hebrew shorthand as well. It's true in Hebrew in general. And actually, in old Church Slavic texts, they often leave these things out, and put, we'll put a little dot that means yeah. that there was a vowel here, and we're not going to tell you what it was yeah, <laughs> because if you're reading this, you should it. know. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we tend to put an e in the yeah. convention, but we've no idea what they put in. But of course, it's so simple to them. As with so many things in ancient Egypt, there's so much that they knew and they never explained because they just thought everybody would always know. And it makes yeah. it really, really difficult. Actually, the but analogy to text messaging is brilliant. You should write an article about that or something. <laughs> it, it does. It really makes text messaging yeah. seem much more highbrow than it is. Yeah. Mean, people make fun of it, but actually it's very telegraphic. It's, yeah, yeah, it's a very distinct position. It's funny because I've seen these psychological tests where they'll show you a certain number of letters, and it turns out that you can read, let's just take English as an example, you can read English actually very well with about half the letters missing. You yeah, just, they used to publicize a sort, a sort of speed writing system, and there'd be adverts, and they'd say, if you could read this message, you can become a secretary, but yeah. it was, if you could read, and, and people could read it. And now there are thousands of 14-year-olds who are absolutely fluid, fluent in it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that's a great story. So let's, um, let's move on a little bit to Cleopatra and her, her context. And again, I guess I'd like to, for you to, uh, this is, I'm just guessing at the, um, the, the things that the uh, that our listeners won't know, and one of them is, uh, I'll use myself as a measure, is the degree of Hellenization which had already taken place um, in the first century um, BC. 
Um, could you talk a little bit about how the Greek elite uh, became Hellenized? Yeah, um, gradually Greeks had been settling in Egypt, and they did it right at the end, even when they had Egyptian rulers, Greeks were coming over and they formed an important part of the Egyptian army. But certainly by the time Cleopatra was on the throne, approximately about 10% of the population, and we can't be certain of it, was Greek or of Greek origins. And they were almost, it was almost as if there were two populations living within the one country, in that the Greeks came over, they were educated, they lived in cities where they could be citizens, and they were, they were cities that were, they were run as Greek cities rather than as traditional Egyptian cities. Uh-huh. They took over the important jobs in the civil service. Uh-huh. They spoke Greek, they, they wrote their documents in Greek. The royal family spoke Greek because they were from Macedonia. Um, the ordinary Egyptian people... So the elite still managed to retain their positions, and the priesthood retained some importance. But I think for the ordinary Egyptians who always had been peasants, it must have been very difficult because they didn't speak Greek. The mm-hmm. Greeks didn't speak Egyptians. And, of course, the Greeks were coming from a society where they were accustomed to slavery. Mm-hmm. The Egyptians never really had slavery. Hmm. But I think it must have been quite a difficult culture, you know, a, a concept difference that the Greeks now find themselves in a position where they were living in a land where the, the native people did all the jobs that slaves would normally do. Mm-hmm. So I think that the tendency is for the Greeks to look down on the Egyptians and the Egyptians to resent the Greeks. Mm-hmm. But it's very hard to document this because we don't have the writings of the ordinary Egyptian people at all. Most of the Egyptian people were illiterate anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can just pick up throughout even Cleopatra's history sort of rumblings of discontent coming not from Alexandria, which was a very, very Greek city, which was the capital city at the time, but from further down the Nile. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You get the impression that there is a great deal of resentment. But when things are going well, it's okay. But if things start to go badly, yeah, for no. example, there's not enough food or something, yeah, you will always get commands from Alexandria that the food has to be diverted to the, the Greek cities. Uh-huh. And you get people complaining, and people start to you know, rebel against this Greek overrule. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So let me ask you just a couple questions uh, that um, what you just said actually brought to mind. One is, a, and this is again a bit of a tangent, but every listener will know this. If the Egyptians didn't practice slavery, what is all that business in the Hebrew Bible about the Jews being captured and taken into uh, Egypt? Weren't they slaves? <laughs> Uh, well, we we have no evidence for it from Egypt, so you've got sort of one side of it and not the other. Um, it's a little bit like the Babylonian captivity. We don't really know if the Jews were ever near Babylon. That's kind of yeah, interesting. And <laughs> you don't know how literal a story it is and how much it's a sort of metaphoric story. Yeah. But we, we do have certainly evidence for a lot of people coming into the Nile Delta, particularly when the rest of the world, the Mediterranean world, is under some sort of crisis, food uh-huh. shortages and so on because the delta was flat and fertile and accessible. And we also know that one thing that the Egyptians did do is that they would go out and capture prisoners of war and bring them back. Uh-huh. And quite often they would do this deliberately, provoke a little local war, uh-huh. capture some people and use them on building sites and so on, yeah. and, then, and then probably let them go again. So although there was no actual foundation for slavery, Taking foreign peoples into the country to make yeah. them work for you wasn't that that big a problem. Yeah, I see what you mean. But actual evidence in Egypt for an exodus that there isn't any. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I often wonder about this when I talk to biblical scholars, and they say the same thing that you know that the Old Testament says the Jews went here and this tribe went there and so on and so forth. But the only evidence we have that any of this happened was in fact the Old Testament itself. 
Uh, yeah, is, I mean, I'm, is, again, I mean, we've got huge gaps in the records. Again, we yeah. tend to think that Egypt has everything recorded and it doesn't. Yeah. No, so right. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but oh, right, yeah. there's no evidence for it. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I just think it's important to uh, – many people don't know that, you, you know, that they'll see a Hollywood film or something and they think that we have, you know, a, an encyclopedia that was written by yeah. the Egyptians that tells us everything about – and in, when, in fact, the, the amount of evidence that's available is extraordinarily small. And, the, and the, then it will go around in a circle as well. People will see a film like The Mummy, where there are five canopic jars and the before, yeah. and then they will start citing that as evidence for the fact that there were four yeah, right. jars because I've seen it on the telly. <laughs> yeah, no, or right. building building pyramids with slaves is another popular one. Yeah, no, I um, think a lot of people think that because they've seen it on films. Yeah, I was going to go. Um, actually, I, that was the second question that I had, and it was about um, the, sort of the, the way the Ptolemaic elite saw Egypt. And I think one thing that people don't realize, and it's largely a, a function of popular representations of Egypt is they tend to, to uh, telescope Egyptian history. Now, at, in Cleopatra's time, the uh, pyramids and a lot of these other uh, artifacts were extraordinarily old, correct? Yes. They, yes, and, yes. And, and they didn't even know where they came from. No, over 2,000 years old, yes. No, exactly. Um, it's, it's such a huge period. Um, we, we think that Egypt was um, unified, became one land in about... 3000 BC, and uh -huh. Cleopatra is dying in, in 30 BC. Yeah. So a massive spell of time. Of course, they've forgotten this stuff, and it, it's all old. And you wouldn't, we, you know, we write books of Egyptian history, we wouldn't write a book of, of British history that went no. back 3000 years old, or American history. No, we um, wouldn't. You, you couldn't, because you know, no. it'd be very difficult. And yet, we do this, and we compare people who are living a thousand years apart quite happily. Yeah. You know, we talk about this, this period, and then you think about it, of other places, people living a thousand years apart, they're very, very different. Yeah, no, well, people living ten years apart in the modern world are very, very different. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, the presidential campaign today in the United States, I mean, we have one guy that's 72 and another guy that's 47, and we think of them as, like, you know, from different worlds. Yeah. <laughs> you can yeah. only imagine. You know, I, I just I have this picture in my mind of the Egyptians, you know, the, the Ptolemaic elite kind of looking at the pyramids or looking at the sphinxes and just wondering... What are those things? Where did they come from? I mean, there were stories about them, and you get some some Egyptians actually go and try and clean them up and try and make them look good because they know they are old royal monuments and they mm -hmm. realise that they're tombs. And they even have sort of tour guides written by people who visited Egypt and are wanting to explain its wonders to oh. other people. So we know that they know a bit. Uh -huh. Um, but the, the intricacies of own histories are gone. In fact, the Ptolemies were interested in this. Mm -hmm. um, they wanted to know the history of Egypt, and Ptolemy II and Ptolemy II actually commissioned a priest to write a history of Egypt. Mm. And he, as far as we can tell, went into the old temples and consulted all the records and actually wrote the first history of Egypt, and that's where we get most of our information. And so that, e that exists today, then? That well, it was written by a priest called Maniso, and his original book isn't, doesn't exist. Uh -huh. But other authors read his book and took chunks of it and put it into their work, so we yeah. can kind of piece it together from their work. Yeah. And he was the first one to divide the royal families into dynasties. Yeah. That's another. And th I was it from him. Yeah, I was going to say that's another thing that I think many people who aren't professional historians don't understand is that we never have the original of anything. I mean, no. I know I was just recently doing some research on uh, the Iliad of all things, and I think the 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 earliest copy that is actual manuscript copy of the Iliad we have is like 12th century right. A.D. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it's, it's not so, original. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't, I mean, that's a lot of years. That's a couple thousand years between I know. when, when it was supposedly written and now. You know, so. We have these Egyptian stories and, and you're thinking, well, we have it written down, but when was it first told and is this 
the yeah. definitive version or is it just one version of it yeah. that we have now so we think everyone believes this but we're different people telling different variants of the same story yeah yeah no it's true i always think of it as a kind of uh, we play this game in the united states you probably uh, play it too in in the uk and uh, it's called telephone where, where you'll say something and whisper it into someone's ear and then they'll whisper it into somebody else's ear and it'll go around. Oh, and you, yes. and you yeah. see how it, it's also called Chinese whispers. Yeah. You, you see exactly, how it comes yeah. out and it never comes out the same. No. <laughs> so imagine no. the way that happens over 2,000 years. You don't know. I keep, I keep thinking of like stories like Disney films like Snow White or Cinderella and everybody who's seen the film thinks that that's the actual the version of yeah, the story yeah, but no. if you go back and read it before the films there are all sorts of variations and different different versions of it you know the dwarves don't have those names in the original stories and so on yeah, sure. but because people see this one version of it they think that is the version yeah. and I'm sure we do that with a lot of our Egyptian fictional writings right um, well, there's, and there's a lot of sanitation that goes on and I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that really uh, flew out of the book at me was um, and I knew about it vaguely was this uh, pre- this this Egyptian Ptolemaic practice of marriage within families, um, which I don't, I didn't see in any Hollywood. You never hear about that in the Hollywood. No, present. no, we take it too, don't we? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can't really talk about that. People were marrying their own brothers and sisters. No, marriage within the family and neighbors within the family. Yeah, no, Ptolemaic family. Yeah, that was considered quite shocking to the outside world as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had been an Egyptian tradition that brother sister marriages were allowed and we have about two or three possible examples of father daughter marriages but personally i think that that possibly there's something more going on it might be some means of making the daughter take on the role of the queen rather than marrying mm-hmm. the father because very few of those actually produce children uh-huh. and that's in the old dynastic past and the egyptian gods also, and goddesses marry each other as the greeks do as well uh-huh. the Greek gods and goddesses yeah. but the ptolemies brought this tradition back and it hadn't been seen for some time i see and it really surprised and, and you know was considered fairly a half sister marriage was just about okay but marrying a full sister was considered very very backwards to the rest of the world yeah. but it, it's something that they did so how did the ptolemies get from macedonia to egypt well alexander the great when he came to egypt um conquered Egypt, moved on a bit and, and obviously died. And his empire was split up and the person who took over Egypt was a man called Ptolemy. Uh-huh, I see. Okay. Um, he had been one of Alexander's generals. And that's roughly 300 uh, BC or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Uh-huh. And um, that's where it came from. And so he just founds a dynasty. Yes, yes. Um, he was obviously a very, very astute man because he'd been, he'd been a general and he'd been a friend of Alexander's. Uh-huh. But he was also able to, to pull the country together, um, get it onto a, a sound commercial footing. He picked all of Alexander's properties, uh-huh. if you like, all his lands. He I picked see. the most fertile, the most stable. And his, his was the one whose empire lasted longest. I see. And so um, is he also the founder of Alexandria? Or is Alexander well, the founder of Alexandria? Alexander, the, the writing tells that Alexander founded Alexandria, uh-huh. but he didn't really um, stay around much to see it built. But he didn't find it as a capital city. He just founded it as a city which would be useful for trading because Egypt was going to have to trade more with the Mediterranean world. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he thought there was a real need for a good seaport. Uh-huh. It was Ptolemy II and Ptolemy II who really developed Alexandria into the capital city of Egypt. Uh-huh. And then so over the... I was going to say, and then over the next uh, several centuries, you don't want to generalize again in that way we just said that we shouldn't. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Egypt becomes extraordinarily wealthy. Is that correct? Yes. 
I mean, she always has been. If she's managed well and if she's not being threatened by outside forces, Egypt has always been very, very wealthy because the Nile floods every year and, and floods the fields. There's no need for artificial irrigation. Um, the crops will grow. The land gets sterilized by the hot sun. So it's a very, very good farming routine. And as long as it's not interfered with, mm-hmm. and as long as you get years of good flooding, then she is very fertile. But as soon as people start invading or there's a need to go out and, and defend the land and the money gets diverted that way, mm-hmm. um, then it starts to go wrong. So the problem is we're really very good managers mm-hmm. on the whole. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, the the flip side of that is that you present an attractive target to to militaristic powers, of which there are many in the Eastern Mediterranean. Was Egypt in the Ptolemaic period invaded many times by, let's say, the I don't know, was the Persians or I don't know exactly who would have been doing it. Um, Well, the Persians had had already ruled Egypt twice. Mm -hmm. In fact, Alexander. came after the Persians and the Egyptians were pleased he arrived because they didn't like the Persians at all. Mm-hmm. But then throughout the Ptolemaic period, um, there were sort of minor incursions from coming from other people who had inherited Alexander's lands and so on, trying mm-hmm. to get into Egypt. Mm-hmm. But really, the, the main growing threat in the end was Rome because Rome was just growing so powerful mm-hmm. and everybody else had fallen to Rome. And Obviously, with with Egypt being so fertile, it, she was always going to be a prime target. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the main things of, of the late Ptolemies, realizing that unless they sided in, in a fairly obvious way with Rome, Rome would just simply take over, and a lot of energy was spent avoiding mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the Egyptians, uh, when when did the when did the Roman Egyptian sort of dance, if we can put it that way, begin? Um, it, to say, but it, it all seems to be—it it also, to me, hinges around Julius Caesar, which I know is really, really late because mm-hmm. there'd been, there'd been obviously going back before that, there'd been problems that Ptolemies had been a, appealing to Rome for support, mm-hmm. and Rome had been sort of supporting some Ptolemies and not supporting others and giving them help. Mm-hmm. We'd had a couple of Ptolemies who'd actually left wills leaving things to Rome. Yes, I saw that, but, yeah. But things seem to be settling down again until Julius Caesar actually takes a very, very personal interest in Rome, and actually, <laughs> uh, sorry, in Egypt, and comes to Egypt. Yeah. And that seems to be when the two sort of really, it's, well, the end is, is, is practically in sight at that point. Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, that brings us to Cleopatra herself. She's alive when uh, Julius Caesar comes to um, Alexandria, very famously, and we can talk about that in a second. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, Cleopatra and her birth and upbringing and that kind of thing? Do we know anything about that? No, very little, really. Um, <laughs> that was a short, <laughs> short, that was a short question. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I could make it up, but it's not right. No, yeah, it. don't make it up. Um, no, um, we don't know when she was born. The way we can work out when she was born is that the author Plutarch tells her, well, we know she died on the 12th of August in 30 BC, and Plutarch tells us that she was 39 when she died, so we can work out that she was probably born um, seven. Can't work it out. It's like 70, 69, yeah. sort of DC, something like probably over the winter we think, uh-huh. but we can't be certain. So we don't even know exactly when she was born. We uh-huh. assume she was born in Alexandria, uh-huh. just because that's where the royal palace was. Uh-huh. Her mother, we assume, is the wife of her father, who's called Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. And one very confusing thing here is that everybody's called by the Ptolemy or Cleopatra. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was going to say. But, um, we know who her father is. Uh-huh. He's he's um, a Ptolemy who's known as Oletes, mm-hmm. Ptolemy the Twelve. Mm-hmm. But her 
he was married to a lady called Cleopatra. We know that she is the mother of Cleopatra, our Cleopatra's oldest sister. Mm-hmm. But nobody says that she's the mother of the other children. Mm-hmm. So she could be, or she might not be. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. she's not, then we don't know who her mother is. Mm-hmm. We know who Cleopatra's grandfather is, one of them, because we know who her father's father is. But her father's father is illegitimate, so we don't know who... Mm-hmm. His father's father's wife is, or, or, or mm-hmm. you know, who the mother is on, on that side of it. Mm-hmm. So really, even placing her, we can place her through her father's line very firmly into the, the Ptolemaic royal family. Mm-hmm. But, but her female relations are very, very difficult for us to say. And we get all sorts of confusions here because, of course, we don't know what she looked like, mm-hmm. because we don't know what her heritage is. Mm-hmm. We know that she spoke Greek as her, her, her basic language. Mm-hmm. But we know that she's supposed to be very gifted about with languages mm-hmm. because the classical authors tell us that she was very fluent in Egyptian. She was the first member of her family to be able to speak Egyptian and mm-hmm. she could speak a lot of other languages as well. Mm-hmm. But we do have to be careful because the classical authors are writing for 200 years after her death. Mm-hmm. So even if they're speaking to people who knew her or knew people who knew her, Again, how, how, how correct we are, we don't really know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And apart from that, she has a reputation in the Arabic literature for being a scientist mm-hmm. and being, good, being um, a mathematician and maybe mm. a builder. Mm. But again, how true that is, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's nothing at all about her childhood. And really, the first we see of her is pretty much when she comes to the throne after mm-hmm. her father's death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's fascinating to speculate, but there's not really a lot to go on. So then, uh, if we could talk about sources for just a second, um, you have some uh, ins- plates of inscriptions in the book and this kind of thing and some coins and that sort of stuff. But in terms of uh, written documents themselves, they're all of much later provenance, aren't they? And yeah. they, they tend to be Roman. That's right. So we see um, Cleopatra through a kind of Roman lens. That's the only way yeah, we can see Yeah, and that's her. a huge problem because the Romans aren't writing unbiased history like we do. They're no. writing to prove how great Augustus is. Yeah. Um, they, they're not going to make Cleopatra into a great woman. Uh-huh. We don't have the equivalent from the Egyptian side. Uh-huh. We have some standard temple images which show her doing very standard things, but yeah. they would be the same for any queen of that time. We have one document that some scholars think she might have scribbled on it. She might mm-hmm. have written Let It Be on it, but it, it's not a personal writing. It doesn't really tell us anything. Yeah. We have a few personal documents that, that aren't related to her, but from, from people from her time. And we have a few commands um, dealing with food distribution and so on. But basically, that's it. So the whole story is really being filtered through Rome. Mm-hmm. And even if you try and strip out all the biases, it's very difficult. Yeah. Because also, the authors are picking it up from each other. Yeah, that's um, exactly right. Yeah. And if one makes something up, then how do you know if it's in all of them, whether it's true or not? Right, that's exactly right. So are there any... I don't know anything... I, I probably should, but uh, are there any papyri from that? I mean, actual sort of 2,000-year-old papyri from that uh, era? Yes, yes there are lots of them, but not specifically helping us that much with Cleopatra's story. It's amazing um, they could survive that long. Well, uh, yeah, again, very, very interesting. Some of them survive in their own right, and some of them have actually survived because they've been reused. They've been written on the back of, right. or they've been incorporated into right. things like mummy cases, which are made out of papyrus. <laughs> and they've used old documents. That's funny because I, I was, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I used to kind of. Um, uh, fix up old houses, and occasionally I would find in the walls of the houses old newspapers. Yeah, exactly the same thing. 
<laughs> and I would read these newspapers like, I found a historical artifact. <laughs> but then you sort of, if you're working in a museum, you're thinking, well, do I dismantle the mummy case? Is there something inside it? Which is the greater evil, I don't know. That's funny. But yes, the, yeah. We get survival because Egypt has, it's a very good climate for survival because uh-huh. it's hot and it's dry. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we just don't have any sort of personal writings and no eyewitness account. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of odd Roman eyewitness accounts, but they're not going to be on bias. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the histories are all much later. Mm-hmm, yeah, I see. So let's um, then go to Cleopatra herself. Uh, uh, given the paucity of the sources and, and, and your extreme intelligence, we'll put the two together. Uh, <laughs> what, um, what, what is the most we can say about Cleopatra's political career? How does she come to power? Well, she comes to power because she inherits the throne. Mm-hmm. But I think we can say that she has to be pretty astute because she keeps power. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in her family, um, when I was doing the book, because it's so confusing, I, I do sort of who's who at the back of the book so people can look it up. And, and if you read through it, almost everybody in her family has been murdered or, or come mm-hmm. to the throne as a result of murder. People don't last very long in that family. Mm-hmm. And she, she rules for 21 years. And mm-hmm. quite difficult years, times when Egypt is, is having problems with Rome. Mm-hmm. And she seems, as far as we can tell, to have a flourishing economy. But although the Nile doesn't always behave as she would like it to, and there aren't enough floods, or there are too many floods sometimes, she still manages to um, get inflation down. She doesn't have people rebelling against her all the time, as far as we can see. Mm-hmm. And the people of Alexandria are very volatile. They seem to rebel at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. But certainly towards the end of her reign, she seems to have, as far as we can tell, and you, you could say to me, well, how would we know because they wouldn't preserve this, but she seems to have the support of her people far more than what one would really expect. Mm-hmm. And she, she manages to cling on to power to us at the last minute. So I think we can say that she's a very astute ruler. Mm-hmm. And I think she makes some wise political decisions. I think aligning herself with Julius Caesar was obviously a very sensible decision. Mm-hmm. And I think on the face of it, aligning herself with Mark Antony was also a very sensible decision. Mm-hmm. It just didn't quite work out the way she would possibly have thought it would do. Mm-hmm. So I think that we can tell that she's an intelligent ruler. Mm-hmm. But Beyond that, it's very difficult to say much more about it, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, uh, to me, part of the fun is the, the fact we don't have the direct evidence and yeah. we have to sort of squeeze it out of everything we can find. Yeah. Well, one question that occurred to me, you know, she um, obviously allies Egypt with uh, Rome. She isn't the first person her father had done some of this. And I think that, was it her grandfather that deeded Egypt yeah. to? Yes. Uh, yeah. So this is not an original policy, but it's a good one. And then she... Um, and this is perhaps what she's most famous for. She has a liaison with Caesar and then later with uh, Mark Anthony. My, my question was, uh, how did she talk to them? What language did they speak? Well, I wondered that. Certainly, well, I always I <laughs> say she's a gifted linguist. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that Caesar could speak Greek. She speaks Greek. Oh, I see. Okay. I'm assuming he couldn't speak Egyptian. I'm assuming she can speak Latin. Yeah. Because of all the list of languages, and I don't have it on me, but Plutarch is a list of languages that she can speak, and there are uh-huh. some bizarre languages. Things like troglodytes that nobody can notice the language. And he says that when anybody comes to visit her, um, they, that she doesn't need an interpreter. Uh-huh. But he doesn't put Latin into the list. Uh-huh. And again, I can only assume that Latin is such an obvious language that people yeah. could talk, that he doesn't put it into a list because he just doesn't think that anybody can't speak it. Um, yeah. But yeah. with her being a gifted lang- linguist, I, was, I, won- I say I've wondered this myself. Yeah. A lot of people spoke Greek anyway. Yeah, I was wondering. I, I was wondering if Caesar actually did speak Greek. It wouldn't be surprising, would it, no, for it a Roman elite? It wouldn't, and it also wouldn't be surprising in her circumstances if she spoke Latin. If she yeah. learnt, if she truly learnt all these other languages as well. Yeah, yeah, I see. So tell us how um, 
how she I'm trying to think of the American idiom now. How she hooks up with Caesar. <laughs> well, well he, he summons her um, because he arrives in Egypt when the country is really sort of about to embark on a civil war that she's been ruling alongside her brother. Uh-huh. And first of all, she took the very dominant role and where the names are put together, she comes first, he comes second. But that is clearly wrong. Mm-hmm. Although he's about eight years younger than her, mm-hmm. he is the male ruler, should have been the first one. So it's a clear sign that she is taking control, whereas perhaps she shouldn't have been, and perhaps it wasn't very tactful of her. Mm-hmm. So by the time Caesar arrived, the two of them are actually on the brink of civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, had, she's fled Egypt, and she's gone to Syria and recruited an army, and her brother is camped at Pelusium, on, on the eastern border of Egypt, mm-hmm. waiting for her to arrive and to fight. And Pompey, Caesar's enemy, had arrived in Egypt and been executed by Cleopatra's brother Ptolemy. Mm-hmm. Caesar came and he found Pompey had been executed, which was good for him, but not he didn't want to particularly condone the murder of a Roman citizen mm-hmm. without a trial or anything. Mm-hmm. And he found that the, the, the brother and sister monarchs were, were fighting, and he summoned them both to Alexandria. Mm-hmm. So Ptolemy, the brother of Cleopatra, who might also have been her husband, we don't know, just went openly to Alexandria and stayed in the royal palace. Mm-hmm. But Cleopatra, who was separated from Alexandria by her brother's army, mm-hmm. which was still in position, had to make a more circuitous route round his army. She left her own troops. And as far as we can tell, sailed to Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And then we have this brilliant story that she was actually smuggled into the palace, uh, wrapped in a rug, yes. and just unrolled at his feet. So yes. she just tumbled out and looked alluring. Uh-huh. Um, there's no proof that that happened. Yeah, it's a great story, uh, though. I, you know, it's fantastic story and brilliant in film. Yeah, it's a bit. I mean, the Egyptians didn't have that sort of carpet. <laughs> I'm not saying that nobody in the world had that sort of stuff. Yeah, that, w- that would do it. <laughs> yeah, we we just don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, that's how she. The basis of the story is that he's summoned them, but she manages to see him before her brother does and have a proper audience with him, and she mm-hmm. managed to put her case so well mm-hmm. that he is convinced that the best way forward for Egypt is that the brother and sister continue to rule together. Mm-hmm. Whereas perhaps we might have expected him to think that the best thing for Egypt would be for Cleopatra to step down and her brother to rule alone. Mm-hmm. And Caesar actually says, yeah, these two of them will rule together. Mm-hmm. And of course, Ptolemy, the, her brother, doesn't like this at all. And neither do the Alexandria people. And the Alexandria war starts because of this. And Caesar is actually sort of finds himself barricaded in Alexandria, can't escape, mm-hmm. stuck in the palace with the brother and the sister. Mm-hmm. And um, eventually has to fight his way out. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't a popular move necessarily that he chose the two together, and I think she must have been very persuasive how mm-hmm. she does it. She did it. Mm-hmm. But no, from it, her point of view, it's very sensible alliance to be allied with him, mm-hmm. because he's 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 obviously in charge of Rome. Yeah. Is um is I, I'm sorry, I was confused by this part, and not because the book is confusing, because it's not, because it was late at night and I was tired. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the book is crystal clear. Was uh, she? Cleopatra married to her brother at the time? Well, we don't know. Um, Ptolemaic tradition would suggest they would have married. Mm-hmm. But when they came to the throne, he was about eight and she was... No, he's probably about ten and she was about 18. Mm-hmm. And that's an awfully big gap. Yeah. I sort of did a bit of research looking in various societies to see how young people could be married or are likely to be married and how 
if they are actually married, is it actually a marriage in all senses of the world? Or is it more just like a contract and it's unconsummated? Mm-hmm. Um, it would be a bit young for a boy in Egypt to marry below the age of, of 12 or 13, mm-hmm. but there's no law against that. Mm-hmm. So they could have been married or they could have had some sort of engagement that was as good as a marriage. It's very difficult anyway for us to tell with Egyptian marriages because Egyptian marriages are very private things. Mm-hmm. So the way you can tell an Egyptian marriage is that just two people set up home together. Mm. And it used to really confuse archaeologists who, you know, hundred years ago were, were used to quite strict you know, religious ceremonies and so on mm-hmm. and, and thought it was quite a lax society because mm-hmm. there was no form of marriage. But the <laughs> Egyptians themselves knew who was married to whom. Mm-hmm. But there was, it's just that there was no ceremony, there was no civil ceremony either, mm-hmm. and they just sat at home together. But having said all that, it's very difficult to say, but I just find the idea of an 18-year-old and a 10-year-old being married together is slightly strange, particularly if, if the woman's the older one. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's just my modern conditioning. Yeah, I don't know my either. Spirit. It's yeah, a, I just wonder whether they would have waited a, a couple of years. Yeah, it's sort of a really good know. question. There's a kind of similar um, doubt which uh, arose in my mind, concerning the uh, putative consummation of the relationship between Cleopatra and Caesar himself. Uh, I, I suppose the, the lore is that they, um, they, they had a relationship in the fullest sense. Um, what evidence is there of that? Well, the, the Roman people are sort of are quite scandalized by what's going on, which suggests that possibly there is something going on to me. Um, but there's actually no concrete evidence that you can say this is, this is what happened. He stays in Egypt longer than he needs to. When the Cleopatra is, is back on the throne and she isn't ruling with her first brother Ptolemy, she's by now ruling with her second, second brother, brother Ptolemy. Yeah. Because the first brother Ptolemy the 13th actually dies at the end of the Alexandria War. Yeah. So she unites with her second brother who's even younger, who's probably 10 years younger than her. Uh-huh. And in fact, one of the classical authors tells us that they did marry, but there's the same problem again, that like she's probably about 20, he's uh-huh. about 10. Yeah. Um, she's ruling with him, she does have a baby, mm-hmm. and she does call him Caesar. Yeah, yeah but, th- but it, it, was, it struck me when I read it, um, and I think you say this in the book, is that, that it, it certainly wouldn't be particularly bad for either Caesar or Cleopatra to uh, l- l- give the impression that it was Caesar's child. No, no. Yeah. And Caesar had no living son. The, exactly. And so and it, I think it, he, and if I think, I think in that sense he possibly, his daughter had died. Um, yeah. I don't know about other children, but certainly, you know, it, it, certainly in history, it, it's rare for a man to actually not want to be known to be fathering sons, isn't it? Yeah. And, and he, he possibly had something to, to prove there. Yeah. Um, and for her point of view, she was queen of Egypt. And I think it's something that we tend to slightly forget. She didn't have to explain herself to anyone. Right. But one of her primary duties as a queen of Egypt was to produce a son who right. would become the next king of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And she has to do that somehow. And if she's married to an eight-year-old boy or a ten-year-old boy, that's going to be, I think, quite difficult. Yeah. It might well be that this is a very satisfactory arrangement for everybody. Yeah, that's what occurred to me. And also there's this sort of lingering, and you mentioned this in the book as well, there's this lingering suspicion that Caesar himself was infertile. Because he yeah. had he had lots of women, but not lots of issue. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, neither of them comments on it. But in Rome, they, they, they think it's scandalous. And later she visits Rome and uh-huh. stays on his estate. And people don't particularly like it. Yeah. He does seem to like her in sort of very broad sense. He de- dedicates a statue of her to a temple, which, again, people don't like because they see it as a slight on his real wife. Uh-huh. But nobody actually comes out and, and says, 
you know, this is, this is a scandal, what's going on here? And right up to the end, it's still never really proved who Caesarian's father is. Uh-huh. Um, we just don't know. But whether he was or whether he wasn't, it would be a good thing if people thought he was, uh-huh. because um, it would make sure that he would have the support of Rome as well as having the support of the Egyptian people. It would be a very good way of protecting his position. Yeah, exactly. Had, had things worked out right. Yeah, exactly. Had they worked out right, yeah. Yeah, so, had, had, had Caesar not been assassinated, yeah, exactly, then, it would have yeah. been very interesting to see how he mm-hmm. developed. So how did uh, I, I found it very curious that Caesar brought Cleopatra to Rome? Why? Because that seemed like a kind of a risky thing to do to me. Why did he do that? It, it, again, it, it's difficult to interpret it with an absolutely clear mind, I think. But I suppose that he, if we looked at it, that he was summoning her, that she was the person who was a client um, monarch of mm-hmm. his, and he was summoning her pretty much to get her loyalty and to maybe give her instructions mm-hmm. and maybe talk about brain and so on, mm-hmm. it, it makes a lot more sense. If, if, if she was a man, would it be so odd that she was summoned? I, I don't know. Yeah, I what, what the, for me, one of the odd things is that she seems to be there for such a long time. Yeah. But other Egyptologists have suggested, um, and historians, that perhaps she made two trips to Rome, because to me it seems odd that she would go to Rome and stay there mm-hmm. for well over a year, mm-hmm. when she's only just re- got her country back together again and she's got her control over it. It might well be that she made two quite brief trips to Rome. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I see. And again, we're, sort of, we're imagining the two of us run into one because we don't know. And that, again, would possibly make a lot more sense. Uh-huh, I see. So she comes to Rome, uh, Caesar's assassinated, and then she goes back to Egypt. Is that right? Do I have the chronology correct? Yeah. Yes, that's, that's right. That's right. She, she goes to Rome either once or twice. Uh-huh. Um, Caesar's assassinated. She goes back quite soon after Caesar's assassinated. With her, with her second brother, husband, probably. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. I see. And pretty soon after she arrives back in Egypt with her brother, he dies. Uh-huh. Which see. is very interesting because we don't know how he dies, we're not told. Uh-huh. And there's always a suspicion that maybe she's had him bumped off. <laughs> because yeah, I see. I see. We, we just said the first brother drowned in an hour, we know that. Mm-hmm. The second brother just died, but of course people did just die. Yeah, no, they Again, did. we don't necessarily have to, to read anything bad into it, but... There's always a sort of feeling there that perhaps this is what's happened because yeah. with him out of the way, he was able to make her young son mm-hmm. king, and that meant that she was fulfilling all the requirements that of, a, of an Egyptian mm-hmm. monarchy. Mm-hmm. That we had a king and a queen on the throne, mm-hmm. but she was in exactly the position that she wanted to be in because the king was about two or three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she was in total control and would be in control for a. a at least, I would think, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And he was her son, so, you know, she, she would be able to, to dominate him anyway. Mm-hmm. So it really, really put in, her into a very good position. Mm-hmm. The only person who was left to be a threat to her was her, her one surviving sister, mm-hmm. and she'd been exiled and was living in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. So following the death of Caesar, although that certainly wasn't ideal for Cleopatra, but she returned to Egypt, her brother disappeared. And she, she suddenly finds herself with a very firm hold on the throne. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the political situation changes rather dramatically in Rome itself, and she has to respond. How does she do that? Yeah, um, she she has to decide who to support, whether she should be supporting the assassins of Julius Caesar or the people who are out to avenge him. And she dithers. She does this quite a lot. Whenever she has a decision, you can see a sort of dithering going on, basically sitting back and not committing herself. Mm-hmm. But eventually she, she picks the side and she, she picks the side of the supporters who are going to try and kill the assassins of Caesar. So she picks the side of the triumvirates, including Mark Antony and mm-hmm. Octavian. Mm-hmm. And she is on their side. 
which is a good thing because they turn out to be the winning side. Mm-hmm. So she's made the right decision again. Mm-hmm. But the trouble is, because she's dithered and because some of her supporters have actually supported the other side, they've supported the assassins, she's still called upon to account for her actions. There's a suspicion by Mark Antony that maybe she was actually on the other side mm-hmm. and she ought to account for herself. And so he summons her to explain what she's been doing. Knowing Mark Antony, knowing that he's always short of money, there's also a big suspicion that he's summoning her, not because he particularly thinks that she has been guilty, but because he thinks he'll be able to squeeze some money out of her by fining <laughs> her for being on the wrong side, because that's what he basically did. He, he went through the list of, of, of people, and if they'd been on his side, he rewarded them, but if he thought they weren't on his side, he, he fined them to find out his own truth. But uh, something more develops as a result of his summoning her. Yes, yes. I suppose Cleopatra's sort of saying a bit of a backward step in that she no longer has a protector again. And assuming that she needs one, she feels she needs one, someone in, in Rome to support her cause, she, mm-hmm. she picks Mark Antony. Mm-hmm. Um, which, on the face of it, was the right decision. Of the triumvirate, um, Lepidus, the third member who no one really ever hears of, it becomes quite insignificant mm-hmm. quite early on, and nobody would pick him to be their champion, I think. Mm-hmm. Octavian who is the second member, who is young and he's inexperienced and he's physically quite weak. People think he's going to die young and he's not experienced, whereas Mark Antony is an experienced friend of Caesar's. He's a man of the world. He's healthy. People are kind of equating him with the god Dionysus. Mm-hmm. And he probably would have looked like the better bet to side with, mm-hmm. I think, to Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. And for a time he was because he was the one that seemed to have all the power. Mm-hmm. So she very much aligned herself with him. Mm-hmm. And then um, they, uh, again, have a relationship in the fullest sense, and they do have issue. I mean, yes, she, they do. She, yes. Uh-huh. So were they, uh, how should one describe this liaison between the two of them? They weren't married. Well, or were they married? I, I don't know how you describe this. They, I, they certainly weren't married in the Roman sense, <laughs> yeah. because Anthony was already, Anthony already married. married. Yeah. And as soon as his wife died, he married again. Yeah. But from Cleopatra's point of view, maybe they were married. Uh-huh. And there are also difficulties with Roman citizens marrying foreigners anyway uh-huh. and, and having children who inherit. I, I don't know how we interpret it or even if we should take it too seriously in uh-huh. a way. Uh-huh. Maybe it was just something, you know, they, they came together. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't married, no, but from her point of view, she could have considered herself married. Mm-hmm. They had children. To him, it doesn't seem to have been a big deal because he he left Egypt before the twins were born. Mm-hmm. Um, the first children she had with him were twins, a boy and a girl. Mm-hmm. And he went off and got married, and he didn't see them for three years. Mm-hmm. So to him, it suggests that this isn't a massive, you know, a major love, mm-hmm. and even a very important thing in his life. Mm-hmm. From her point of view, it might simply have been another way of getting more children who would also have the right. support of Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's difficult because it's hard to put ourselves in that position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know I'm stating the obvious here. No, no, that makes perfect sense, absolutely. And so then um, how does the relationship progress? That is well, Anthony goes away and he, his, his wife, his current wife dies, but he's, he's forced politically to make another marriage with the half-sister of Octavian. He marries a lady called Octavia, who's yeah. a widow, and she actually gives him two children as well. Uh-huh. But he eventually, obviously, goes back to Cleopatra. Uh-huh. And once he's gone back to her, we then have letters with him, and he's corresponding with Octavian, and he actually refers to Cleopatra as his wife. Uh-huh. Now, whether he considers that she actually is his wife, um, because he's, he's repudiated Octavia, uh-huh. 
I don't know, maybe by the end they actually considered themselves married in, in every sense of the word. Yeah, no, exactly. We just don't know. It, it, it's very hard to see. Certainly in Egypt, there was no real idea of illegitimate children. Mm -hmm. um, children were a blessing, and if you had them, that was great. I, I, the Romans obviously have a very, very different approach to this. And mm -hmm. certainly to Romanize, Cleopatra was, you know, awful because she was breaking up decent Roman families. She was she was taking good men from decent Roman matrons and was corrupting them. Mm -hmm. But I think through through Cleopatra's eyes and her court, because not only is this Egyptian approach to marriage different, mm -hmm. but also her her Greek-based court, they considered luxury and ostentatious luxury to be a very desirable form mm -hmm. of, of life. It's something that seems to have attracted Mark Antony very much. So things like drinking to excess were considered perfectly acceptable, mm -hmm. whereas they weren't in Rome. It's, it's two very, very different cultures. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to reconcile how it would have been seen from both sides of it. We can certainly see how the Romans saw it, and they didn't like it at all. No, that's right. I mean, we can see it in the sources that describe Cleopatra herself, because they are very censorious about uh, her behavior. I mean, she comes off as a harlot because... She does. She they, does. I mean, it's a bit unfair because actually she possibly only had sex with two men. Yes, no, right. I was going to say, exactly. I mean, but from the Roman perspective, uh, she was yeah. a temptress and, you know, these other sort of uh, things. Yes, and, and the, the, trumpets and, yeah, the, yeah. the, the Roman, fa Roman ideal of the family and the household and the matron who, who doesn't really, you know, consult with men at all. She's the exact opposite. Yeah. And she starts to symbolize the whole of the sort of decadent East as opposed to the sort of upright and morally exactly. correct West. Yeah. You know, an awful lot gets read into it. And the fact that Mark Antony has a wife, Octavia, mm -hmm. the two become very much sort of in the propaganda of the time. They become sort of pitted against each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Octavia stands for all that is good and, and Roman, and, and Cleopatra mm -hmm. stands for everything that is decadent and non-Roman. Identity it's politics, been, very early version of identity politics like we have here in the United States. Um, exactly, yeah. yeah uh, really, really similar. Yeah, so the... the, the uh, Cleopatra uh, kills herself in the end after um, Antony and Octavian do battle and Antony loses. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Um, and, well, Antony, first of all, does battle with Octavian. Well, how far back do you want to go? It's, a, it's quite a long story, but basically they fight the Battle of Actium and Oct um, Octavian wins, Antony and Cleopatra lose. They don't just lose. Cleopatra's ships actually sail away from the battle. They run away, if you like, uh -huh. and Antony follows. So it's not just that they've lost, but it seems that he's deserted his troops as well, and his troops are left behind, and uh -huh. they have to fight on, and they eventually lose. Uh -huh. And Cleopatra and Antony make their way back to Egypt. Uh -huh. Antony tries to rally support from some of the legions who, who are in and around Egypt, but, but gets nowhere. Nobody wants to support him, and mm -hmm. it becomes pretty obvious that they're absolutely isolated. Mm -hmm. Um, Cleopatra tries to make plans. She thinks of fleeing to Spain, but the Mediterranean isn't safe. They'll get caught in boats. Mm -hmm. She then has some ships dismantled and, and tries to take them overland uh -huh. so that she can escape to India uh -huh. and be with her son, who she's already sent on his way. But that doesn't work out either. Uh -huh. And they realize that they're pretty much trapped uh -huh. in Alexandria. I see. And then Antony goes out to fight Octavian, who's arrived and who's camped outside the gate of Alexandria and mm -hmm. he loses all his, it's basically all his troops desert mm -hmm. and he loses. He comes back into Alexandria and he hears a, hears a rumour that Cleopatra has killed herself and so he realises that his true love is dead. 
if, if you want to over-romanticize yeah, it. Sure. Or uh-huh. he realizes that there's just no way out. Yeah. Um, and he stabs himself, but he doesn't kill himself. And hmm. this is his line there, says, mortally wounded but not dead. Another messenger comes and says, well, actually, no, she's not dead. She's mm. still alive, but she's locked up in her tomb. Mm-hmm. And so he's carried there and to the tomb, and he's actually hauled in through the windows, and he mm-hmm. dies in Cleopatra's arms. Mm-hmm. And this is the story that the classical authors tell us again. There's no actual sort of evidence from, from Egypt of this, but it, it's a very interesting story. Mm-hmm. Once he's died, then um, she, she seems to realise that there's, there's no way out, really. She keeps sending messages to Octavian, and she pleads for her children's life. She, she offers to do whatever he wants, basically, as long as her children are allowed mm-hmm. to live. Mm-hmm. But he manages to get her out of her tomb and back into the palace. Mm-hmm. He, he wanted to get her out of the tomb because she put all her treasures in there. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be a concern from Octavian that if Cleopatra torches all her treasures, he'll lose a lot, a lot of, of treasure mm-hmm. which he wants to keep for himself. So he separates her from her tomb and sends her to the palace. And then she gets this message that he's actually going to send her to Rome and exhibit her in a parade, mm-hmm. a triumphal parade, and she decides to kill herself. Mm-hmm. So the classic story is that she writes him a final message, then locks herself in her tomb and commits suicide. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is we don't know how she does it. Yeah, but there's an interesting story about it, isn't there? She, what is it? I, I can't remember exactly from the book. She a snake um, bite or something, or what was it? Well, the classical authors don't know how it happened, yeah. but there is definitely a rumour about snakes, and the sort of stories start to circulate that snakes have been going out of the window and yeah. so on. Yeah. But other experts snake experts and historians have already looked at this. It's, it's been something that's been doubted right from the beginning, because uh-huh. even the classical authors say, but can this be true? Uh-huh. Um, people, are, to kill yourself with a snake is actually harder than you'd think. <laughs> yeah, and, and the story is, is that, that she's got two serving women in the room as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, do, do you use one snake for three people, or yeah. do you use three right. snakes? Exactly, yeah. Why hasn't there been noticed for three snakes? Yeah. And, we, and, and and again, we know all this from these Roman authors. They don't know. Yes. But, yeah. Snakes are very, very Egyptian. Um, there's a very strong connection between snakes and Egyptian royalty. Mm-hmm. In that kings and queens wear snakes on their brow, and they're snake gods and goddesses. And Isis, mm-hmm. the goddess who Cleopatra was really considered to be the living incarnation of Isis, mm-hmm. also could occasionally take the form of a snake. Mm-hmm. So it seems very appropriate. Mm-hmm. When she died, and obviously couldn't be going through this triumphal procession alive, mm-hmm. it seems that a statue was put in place, and it may well be that that statue was decorated with a snake or snake. I see. And that actually people picked up on this, and it sort of became a part of yeah. of the legend. Lore, yeah. So that now everybody thinks she was bitten by a snake. Yeah, yeah. That's but there are stories that she used to experiment with poison. Uh-huh. So, but... Um, who knows? Yeah. Maybe you know, some people suggested that she had poison hidden in a comb in her hair. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I, I think I think who knows is right. I, you know, it, <laughs> it's, a, it's it's a fascinating book, and you know, I I, I really admire um, anyone who works in uh, uh, in a kind of environment of sources that uh, requires sort of so much intelligence and imagination, and also so much restraint, because in order to do this work, you cannot read sort of modern representations of the thing, or you will become even more biased than you are. I mean, telling what you can actually say from the sources in a situation like this can often be a kind of disappointing uh, exercise because there's really actually so little you can 
say with a great degree of assurance, but I should tell all our listeners that you've done a masterful job. And, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time, and we really, really appreciate it, Joyce. Um, let me ask you a, a final question as the hour closes. It's our traditional questions on, on new books in history. And what are you working on now? Um, I'm writing a history of Egyptian mythology. Mm-hmm. Well, that's completely so. appropriate. How, how far are you in that? <laughs> Um, I've only just started. Yes, here, really. Don't tell the publisher. No, I won't tell the publisher. <laughs> yeah, and publishers, yeah, but I, I could go on and on about publishers. Um, but there are friends. That's important yep. to remember that. There are friends. Uh, anyway, Joyce, uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, all right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Joyce Tilsley, author of Cleopatra, Last Queen of Egypt. I'm Marshall Poe the host of New Books in History, and I hope you have a good week.